You're listening to Manner of Speaking with Greg Mayu. Today's episode The Liquid Silver Tongue. This is episode three in a series on film projectionists. And today we're talking about all the things that can go wrong in a projection booth. If you haven't heard parts one and two, you may want to check those out first. They're called Tomorrow There's More Movies and Pandora's Box Opened. Yeah, anything can go wrong. The whole chain. Well, the worst thing to do is you scratch a movie. A film not showing up. You thread something wrong. You go over like a roller the wrong way. And then of course it could be damaged in bad shape. And you just put a big white line down the entire film. Or I've had films come in with two of the same reels and missing one. And that usually means that there's another poor soul out there that's got my half of the movie too. So there's two theaters that are screwed up. The film is in this big giant reel and then it goes through this thing that's in the middle called the brain. Just like this little tension arm kind of situation. What ends up happening at the end is that it all gets clogged up with the tape. In the brain, you get what's called a brain wrap. It just gets really tight and eventually just snaps. And, uh, and that's bad. The more plumbing you have, the more problems you have in some of these institutions. You, and the good thing about that is that usually that's towards the end of the movie. I guess that maybe is even worse. It's like five minutes left and the movie ends. And we're looking out halfway through the film and I start to see what looks like scratches on the film. Rain scratches is the technical name. Just as I'm starting to get really curious, the phone rings and it's like, shut it down. The ceiling tiles just caved in. There's a whole bunch of water dripping from the ceiling. So it was actually water and it was rain, really. (laughs) That's the voice of Mike Katz, a projectionist at the Bam Rose Cinema in Brooklyn. I spoke with three projectionists for this story and the one thing I noticed they all had in common was they all seemed to love the expression, the show's over. Here's Scott Hart, who was a projectionist at IMAX. If the IMAX film breaks, ever, show's over, that's it. You can't pull film through and rethread it. You can't resync the audio. Show's over. That's it. More specifically, they love saying the show is over when it's not their fault. And I think Joe Stankus, who works at the IFC Center in Manhattan, does a good job of explaining why. You're kind of like the keeper of this knowledge, and no one really is going to question that. Like, if you just say, oh yeah, something went wrong, there's technical difficulties, Everyone just kind of bows to it. You know, even the managers of the theater or the programmers or something like that is like, they don't know anything about that junk most of the time. And so there's a bit of a power trip. And it's just nice to be able to say that, be like, no. And of course, what made this all beautiful was Harvey came running into the booth. What's going on? What's going on? And I had no idea who he was, okay? And, you know, I think I was probably short or smart and says, well, what do you think's going on? The ceiling caved in and the movie's over. And he started spouting something about, you know, get this back on and let's fix this. And I'm like, I've been here too many times to know that it's over, okay? 
you know, the landing gear collapsed, we're not flying, whatever you want to call it. And then, of course, some more tiles fell. And then... Mike, I'm going to the corner for a minute. I'll be back before I break. Okay. So, uh, shit happens. Fortunately, not that often. But for all those listening out there, when it does, it's Saturday night. It's a full house. So you're on your first date, and you're going to have a good time only if you see this movie, and it breaks. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Not my fault. My favorite projection booth disaster story comes from Scott, who started out as a projectionist when he was just entering high school. And like many of Scott's stories, it's gloriously long-winded, so I'm devoting the rest of this episode to it. This story picks up right where we left off with Scott in part one. It was the early 80s. Scott was having a field day working at his hometown theater in Geneseo, Illinois. And what brought it to an end was he started dating. We were in that phase that you get into when you're teenagers where everything is about, hey, where are we going to go to get a loan? So I had the keys to the theater. The entrance to the projection booth is actually a separate door from the theater. You have to walk up many stairs to a second or third floor where the booth is. She and I had gone up there and I'd locked everything behind us. And then I took her into another room, the side room, that is separate from the projection booth. And we were like, you know, like making out or something like that in a closet or something. And lo and behold, the owner pulls up. And I hear every single trigger go off that I know that he's coming up the stairs. The door opens, the key turns. Uh, he's not going into the projection booth, he's going into the side room. And he finds me and this girl, and we're just standing there. We're, we're actually standing like four or five feet, feet apart with our arms folded and everything. And he just tells us to leave. I think a few days pass and he calls me into his office and uh, it was all just so completely unnecessarily overblown or dramatic. He says something to the effect of like, uh, I'm going to give you the option to keep your dignity and just quit. Okay, well, here's the deal. What he didn't know was I had already applied for a job as a projectionist at a local drive-in theater. I immediately went from working at this small town renovated movie theater to becoming a drive-in theater projectionist. And I started at a drive-in theater called The Memory. So my first night that I arrived, which I'll never forget, the feature film that night was uh, Lou Ferrigno's Hercules, which I now own on DVD and love. I, I arrived and um, I had my little notebook and I had my pen and I get trained by these two guys that are just uh, wonderful. One of them I'm still, still one of my closest friends, his name is Brad. Brad's job was security. Brad's job was he walked up and down the rows of the cars with a large stick and he did his job very well. JB, the guy who trained me, was the projectionist. 
Brad and JB were like, hey, you're Scotty, come on in. And they had a case of beer and cigars. Have, have a beer, have a cigar. I'm like, no, 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 that's, that's okay, guys. I'm gonna go sit over here and just draw some stuff and try to learn this stuff I'm doing. Like for years later, they would still give me shit about that because it took me forever to like loosen up around them. But I got to see, I got to see films at, through drive-ins that I I didn't even know existed. Like I saw Gates of Hell, uh, Louis Fulci's Gates of Hell, which I don't know if you've ever seen, but but like Gates of Hell is not the type of film that would play a midwestern theater. A drive-in, yes. I got to see bad comedies. God, I got, I, got, I got to see 60s and 70s horror films. I mean, people throw around the word grindhouse now, but you wouldn't believe the things that I got to see. You know, just an endless array of, of, of some of the oddest films. You know, it was just, it, it was a huge education in an entire genre, type of film that I previously hadn't had. Well, the drive-ins were part of a circuit. And I worked in one town at this drive-in, which is called The Memory. Now, then a few towns over, there was another one that was called The Bel Air. And then in that same town, but on the far, far, far end, probably a good 15 miles away, um, was another one called The Oasis. What I did was, once I got it down pat, they started moving me from drive-in to drive-in. And it was also my first experience working in a union environment, which I didn't know. I didn't understand. Like, it was all over my head. So I didn't know that, like, for instance, if you work in a union environment, you grow up in the Midwest and you're an employee, and, like, you have someone who's there who's your manager, you're not supposed to talk to your manager. You're not supposed to, like, be friendly with them. Because I'll never forget this big speech the guy who I got the job through gave me, who was a very tall, imposing man. Think of, um, who's the guy that plays the cowboy in The Big Lebowski? Sam, Sam Watterson. Yeah, this, this guy looks like Sam Watterson with shorter hair. Okay, I just want to interject with one editor's note. Uh, Sam Watterson did not play the cowboy in The Big Lebowski. What Scott meant to say was Sam Elliott. Okay. But anyway, I remember him telling me not to be whoring around with management, which was a term I had never heard before. The important distinction I'm making here is that the setup at a drive-in is completely different. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. It's straight out of the 50s or the 60s. You have two huge projectors, and they're not lit by bulbs, they're lit by arc lights. And the way that an arc light works is that there is a carbon this rod. This two-part course is designed to acquaint new and incumbent theater employees with the theory and care of theater motion picture equipment. The occupation of motion picture projectionist began when a light source was coupled to a projector. For an audience of many people, the first movies were illuminated by a flame fed by a block of calcite, similar to the modern substance known as carbide. This method had a short life and soon gave way to the carbon arc. Since a temperature of approximately 2800 degrees is sufficient to produce a white heat, some of the brightness of the carbon can be attributed to particles of incandescent carbon giving off light energy in the area of the arc crater. Due to these extreme operating temperatures, the arc lamp requires the highest degree of recurring maintenance. The carbon rod burns like a fuse, and the brass rod is carrying an electrical charge that has to ignite. It has to first come in contact with the carbon rod and then be detached. And then there's a measured amount of space that you have to make between those two things, and that is what creates the light that's going to be projected through the film. And then you have to monitor the burning of that carbon rod and be prepared to change it 
or, or add to it if, if necessary because the way the carbon rods are made is it looks like it's a piece of pencil lead about this big and then on one end there is an indentation like a conical indentation and the other end has a conical point because you may get in a situation where you don't have enough of a rod to finish a film but you have so much that you can't burn off what you have. I'm not explaining this well but the point is you have to attach these things like Legos or something. This was all really, really old school, and it was a lot for me to take in because there's a certain amount of pressure involved in working a drive-in show that is nothing like the environment at my hometown theater. Like, I remember, I remember in my hometown theater uh, one night running the movie Tootsie. But boy, did he show us. He auditioned for the female lead on a soap opera and became the hottest... The projector was running. I was downstairs sitting in my boss's office, like going through his shit, you know, blah, 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 having a good time. And then suddenly I realized it was really quiet. It was really, really quiet. I couldn't figure out what had happened. And I bolted out of the office into the theater. No movie on the screen. The film had broke. And the film had broke right at the end. And this was at the crucial moment at the end of the film where uh, Dustin Hoffman bumps into Jessica Lange Look, you don't know me from Adam, but I was a better man with you as a woman than I ever was with a woman. I'm sorry, folks, the film's broke. I'll have it back up in just a second. So, so I run upstairs, and the thing is, is that in a situation like this, you can't do a, you, you, you have to do it really quick and dirty. What you have to do is you have to pull enough of the film up to rethread the projector and still be able to slip it under that reel. You can repair it later but you've got to get the film going again. And I proceeded to take the entire climax of the film and pull it past the gates and everything so that um, the people who had been sitting there waiting for the film to start waited to watch the credits roll. And I just got to watch the whole audience walk out in disgust. So anyway, the point is, is that in my hometown theater environment is a push-button thing. You could walk away from the projector. Um, there were fail-safes stuff like that. It's a very different environment in a, in, in a drive-in theater. You're working with two projectors. They're both running simultaneously. They're both burning arc lights. They've got gates. They've got dampers. They've got lenses that you have to change. And each reel is about 20 minutes long. See, a movie doesn't come all on one big reel. It comes on a few. So someone has to be there to switch the projectors at the exact moment that one reel ends and the next one begins. If you look for it, you can see these little dots come into the upper right-hand corner of the screen. In the industry, we call them cigarette burns. The, the purpose of the cigarette burns is actually a little more involved than just the way it's mentioned in, in Fight Club. Because what the cigarette burn means is, first one goes through, you start up the projector. Second one goes through, and you have to open the gate. That's what the two points mean. Basically, I'm working between these two massive machines. I'm constantly running around having to load these reels of film. When the reel of film passes through and the first cigarette burn goes through, I have the pre-looped projector over here on my left set to go and I gotta start it up. When the second cigarette burn goes through, I have a pedal that I have to hit and that pedal will take and it'll move two dampeners and it will open one and close one projector. So to the audience, there's just been a jump cut. But in fact, I've just gone from one 10 minute reel of film to another 10 minute reel of film. Then on the projector where the film had ended, the one that I had just shut down, you then had to take that reel over to a table, take an empty reel of film, grab the end of it, 
put it over. And if you were lucky, you worked at a theater that had an electrical rewinder or else you stood there for about as many minutes as you could get in before the next changeover and hand crank the entire reel back. That's how it was done. One night, I'm working and I'm showing a horror film. I can't remember what the movie is to save my life. And it's also raining a bit too. I have carbon rods that I'm burning and they, they keep track of these carbon rods. Uh, so much so that the projectionists, when they had a chance, would hide them. Because you never knew when you might need them. And I had a carbon rod like a stub that was burning. This is in a projector right now that's not running. I have it preloaded with film, but I can't just take it out. I, I don't want to waste it. And so I attach a new carbon rod to it. I make my connection point with the brass tip and the carbon rod and I hit my arc. And the thing is, is that, remember I said it's a measured space. The carbon rod is really a bit too close to the brass tip because what we're trying to do is to create a focused field of light that is going to give the best presentations possible on the screen. So I think I'm gonna be real clever. What I'm gonna do, because I know that you can do this from time to time, is I'm going to just let it burn off. I'm gonna let it, uh, sometimes you just have to let the carbon rod burn off. There's a metal gate that slides down that is between the light source and the film. And then in front of that, there is an asbestos damper, which is closed like that. Well, I had the gate closed. Now, a couple minutes pass. Uh, considering the amount of time we're talking about here, I would say maybe three, four, five minutes, and it's going to be time for my changeover. So I go over to the other projector, and I'm watching the screen, and I get the first cigarette mark. So, hit my projector, motor's running. I get the second cigarette mark, hit my pedal to move the dampener over, nothing. Hit the pedal again, nothing. I walk over because I know how the whole rod system works with the gates. I walk over and physically try to push the rod and I can't do it. And what's happened is this, while that carbon rod was burning, I didn't have the asbestos damper down. And with the asbestos damper not down, it welded the projector shut. The first thing I had to do was shut everything down. Then I had to grab and unthread the entire reel from the fucked up projector and run it over to the next projector. Then I had to re-thread that and start the movie. Okay, you know, people and cars are honking their horns and shit like that. And so I go back over to the other projector to figure out what's going on. I go in there with a flashlight and take a look. I have melted this metal gate. The metal gate looks like this big kind of liquid silver tongue that is now just hanging over the front of the projector. And now, if the audience wants to see the rest of the film, they're going to have about a five to six minute wait between each reel, because that's what I have to do. So when, so on the, so I, that's what I did for the rest of the night. That that film would end as soon as it would end. I grab the reel, set it on a table, thread up the new one, start it, get that reel rewound, but go back to try to figure out what was wrong with the projector. I called up the projectionist that had trained me at this place. It was a guy named Ron, because this was at a different theater. And I said, you know, Ron, I have an emergency here. I've I got an emergency on my hand. I, don't, I have no idea what I've done. By now, almost the entire 
parking lot is empty. People have just left in disgust. I've already made an announcement that we've got a problem, but it doesn't matter. They're sick of waiting and stuff like that. So Ron comes in and he's like, you know, boy, you know, he's like, well, you really did it this time. And he had never seen anything like it in his life. And about, about 45 minutes later, with a hammer and a chisel, he gets the gate out. And it's just like I described it. It's, it's this soft, silvery form of metal where you can see that it melted into a square shape and kind of dipped through. It's almost as if I had let that carbon uh, arc focused on that spot long enough. It would have burned straight through. So... You know, I, you know, I'm a kid, so I'm like, oops, sorry. And, you know, I don't know what to say. And Ron starts looking around all over the booth to see if he has another gate that we can put in. And it turns out that he's got a bunch of gates, but none of them fit. None of the silver gates fit at all. It gets to be like, like two in the morning. And Ron's like, look, there's nothing else we can do about this tonight. Get all your films rewound. Uh, we'll contact Ed, who was that big union guy. And, you know, we'll let him know what's happened and whatever. <laughs> so then the next night, I come into work. And this is not going to be funny to anyone but me. But I just remember how naive I was. So the next night, I come into work. And I'm getting set up. And I look at the, I look at the projector. And the projector is still basically in the same state that it was and everything. And so I'm setting things up as best as I think that I should for, you know, us to get the show started. And in walks Sam Watterson. Very slowly. walks over and he takes a look around and he looks at me and he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a gate one of these silver metal gates the type that we couldn't find the night before that would fit and I was like gee thanks <laughs> and I had no idea that this whole thing this, this enormous production of having this guy come to deliver this thing was to browbeat me but it all just whew, right over my head. Hey boss, sorry it happened. Hey, thanks for the new gate. Won't, won't let it happen again. You know, and I think he kind of left just shaking his head. Okay. So that brings us up to about eighty-five. Maybe eighty-five or so. Okay. Smash cut to to 2001. My girlfriend in Manhattan has kicked me out because I have a coke problem. She's right to do it too. Uh, I deserve it. And I wind up on a couch in Brooklyn. And I have no place to go. And I finally turn to my family in the Midwest. And I say, look, I don't have any place to go. I've got nothing. Can I please come back to our home and stay there? See, the thing is, is that our house in our hometown at this time was empty. My brother had moved to California. My sister had moved to Texas. And my mother and father were taking care of some family property in like Nebraska and Arkansas. And at first they said no, because they didn't really know what was going on with me. The truth was is I didn't have one of these type of cocaine problems where I were like, if, you know, like I was gonna go and sell their TV set and buy more coke. It wasn't that sort of thing. My problem was much more benign than that. But the point is that they didn't know that. They didn't know if they were letting like their junkie son back into their house or not, but they relented. So I went back to the Midwest alone. And I went back to my folks' empty house 
and tried to make some sense out of my life, which at the time meant drinking a great deal of beer. That was back when I was a beer drinker and eating more tombstone pizza. I can't even look at a tombstone pizza anymore. I can't. I ate so many tombstone pizzas that I used to tell my mom, I said, I have, I've, I have seen the face of my enemy and it is a tombstone pizza. I'm back home. I got nothing. Add in the local paper. Local museum's going to open up an IMAX theater and they need a projectionist. Well, well, well. So I clean myself up and I straighten myself out enough for a job interview. I put on a suit and a tie and I walk in to this museum and I proceed to lay out all my credentials. Um, which is extremely funny to me because if anybody knows me, they know that when I was a child, I used to think the word credentials meant underwear, but that's a different story. I'm like, hey, guess what? Hometown boy. Used to run the hometown theater. You know these drive-ins around here? Remember those? Ran them too, pal. And then I waffled a little bit and talked about having done a few other projectionist gigs since then, but that was complete lies. So I walked out of that office with a $23,000 a year job. And that might not sound like much to anybody, but at the time, it was more than a local high school teacher was making, and I had just lost everything. And I got the job. Chief Projectionist IMAX Theater. My boss was hilariously hands-off. Like, it got to the point where I was um, smoking cigarettes in the booth, in the, walking around in this booth smoking cigarettes, openly drinking like Captain Morgan and shit like that because I did, sometimes I went days and never saw my boss at all. And I, I was expected to stay in that booth all the time. I had my own private bathroom, a microwave and everything, and I had the internet. And boy, did I get in trouble for my surfing on the internet. IMAX is really kind of oppressive in the sense that like you really can't leave the booth and it has a psychological effect on you after a while. You know, you would think, oh great, you got all this privacy, the booth is like an executive lounge, you've got the internet, you're probably getting a lot of drawing done. No, I was bored out of my skull, it was, it was oppressive, dark, with a lot of loud machinery and you put on top of that um, the work I've done in bars and clubs and my hearing is really bad, like it's really, really bad. I, I liked it a lot at first, but during my second year, I really started, it, beca it began to be a bit of a grind. It was, it was so surreal taking a skill set that I had almost before I'd hit puberty and then having my life go so many different directions and then completely collapse and then out of nowhere walking into an opportunity to present that skill set again and get a job. And it went quite well until I found a new guy to sell me coke. But that's another story. How was that? Since 2004, Scott has not worked as a projectionist. But to look around his room, it sort of feels like he brought the booth with him. In a way, it reminds me of Mike's booth at the Bam Rose. Both rooms have a mattress off to the side next to a workstation, which for Scott is a drawing table where he does his artwork. 
and next to that a small desk where he spends most of his time on the computer. And sitting on top of the computer is a small portable DVD player, which Scott uses to run movies in the background. At the time of my visit, I had a copy of The Odd Couple inside. And on the floor are about 20 or 30 empty wine bottles, an empty pizza box, and the entire contents of his pencil sharpener. So they both have the residue of being occupied by one person for several hours at a time, for several days in a row, constantly running movies, eating takeout, with the cool glow of a computer screen to keep you company. It even sounds like a booth because he keeps a fan running all the time. I, I'm a white noise guy. I like having a certain amount of white noise. Uh, I can't sleep without white noise. And although it doesn't have the smells of a booth, Scott can describe exactly what you're missing. It's a combination of like hot dust and enameled metal and emulsion. They're very unique. You don't, you don't find them anywhere. You don't, you don't encounter them in still photography. You don't encounter them in video work. It only exists in the world of, of a projectionist. It's as if he's still running a booth, except there's no one there. No one's watching the show. I've, I've never, ever been successful as a performer, ever. However, I love being in situations where I get to run a show. It's just so enjoyable being a stage manager or an MC or a DJ or something like that. You know, that's, that to me is really, really enjoyable. And there's something very gratifying about being a projectionist in the sense that you get to see the entire arc of, you know, people coming in and being excited with anticipation to see something. You, you, know, you know which parts are going to scare the audiences. You know when people are going to like jump or scream or yell or stuff like that. And then you get to see at the end of the evening, you know, the whole drift of people leaving that have enjoyed the themselves all in different ways because of this big experience and meanwhile you were just the guy up there flipping the switch. Of all the jobs that I've done in my life, um, of, of the most unique and the ones that I'm, I'm proudest of, I would list the drive-in projectionist one very close to the top because it's a piece of history and then the other one would be being an MC at a strip club because that's the closest I'll get to ever being Lenny Bruce.